Section 9 of The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denise Lacey. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford. Part 3, Section 1. The odd thing is that what sticks out in my recollection of the rest of that evening was Lenora's saying, of course you might marry her, and when I asked whom, she answered, the girl. Now that is to me a very amazing thing, amazing for the light of possibilities that it cast into the human heart, for I had never had the slightest conscious idea of marrying the girl. I never had the slightest idea even of caring for her. I must have talked in an odd way, as people do who are recovering from an anesthetic. It is as if one had a dual personality, the one eye being entirely unconscious of the other. I had thought nothing. I had said such an extraordinary thing. I don't know that analysis of my own psychology matters at all to this story. I should say that it didn't, or, at any rate, that I had given enough of it. But that odd remark of mine had a strong influence upon what came after. I mean that Lenora probably never would have spoken to me at all about Florence's relations with Edward if I hadn't said two hours after my wife's death, now I can marry the girl. She had then taken it for granted that I had been suffering all that she had been suffering, or at least that I had permitted all that she had permitted so that a month ago, about a week after the funeral of poor Edward, she could say to me in the most natural way in the world, I had been talking about the duration of my stay at Branshaw, she said with her clear, reflective intonation, Oh, stop here forever and ever if you can. And then she added, You couldn't be more of a brother to me, or more of a counselor, or more of a support. You are all the consolation I have in the world. And isn't it odd to think that if your wife hadn't been my husband's mistress, you would probably never have been here at all. That was how I got the news, full in the face like that. I didn't say anything, and I don't suppose I felt anything, unless maybe it was with that mysterious and unconscious self that underlies most people. Perhaps one day when I am unconscious or walking in my sleep, I may go and spit upon poor Edward's grave. It seems about the most unlikely thing I could do, but there it is. No, I remember no emotion of any sort, but just the clear feeling that one has from time to time when one hears that some Mrs. So-and-so is au mieux with a certain gentleman. It made things plainer, suddenly, to my curiosity. It was as if I thought, at that moment, of a windy November evening, that, when I came to think it over afterwards, a dozen unexplained things would fit themselves into place. But I wasn't thinking things over then. I remember that distinctly. I was just sitting back rather stiffly in a deep armchair. That is what I remember. It was twilight. Branshaw Manor lies in a little hollow with lawns across it and pine woods on the fringe of the dip. The immense wind, coming from across the forest, roared overhead. But the view from the window was perfectly quiet and gray. Not a thing stirred except a couple of rabbits on the extreme edge of the lawn. It was Lenora's own little study that we were in, and we were waiting for the tea to be brought. I, as I said, 
was sitting in the deep chair. Lenora was standing in the window, twirling the wooden acorn at the end of the window blind cord, desultorily round and round. She looked across the lawn and said, as far as I can remember, Edward has been dead only ten days, and yet there are rabbits on the lawn. I understand that rabbits do a great deal of harm to the short grass in England. And then she turned round to me and said without any adornment at all, for I remember her exact words, I think it was stupid of Florence to commit suicide. I cannot tell you the extraordinary sense of leisure that we two seemed to have at that moment. It wasn't as if we were waiting for a train. It wasn't as if we were waiting for a meal. It was just that there was nothing to wait for. Nothing. There was an extreme stillness with the remote and intermittent sound of the wind. There was the gray light in that brown small room. And there appeared to be nothing else in the world. I knew then that Lenora was about to let me into her full confidence. It was as if, or no, it was the actual fact that Lenora, with an odd English sense of decency, had determined to wait until Edward had been in his grave for a full week before she spoke. And with some vague motive of giving her an idea of the extent to which she must permit herself to make confidences, I said slowly, and these words too I remember with exactitude, Did Florence commit suicide? I didn't know. I was just, you understand, trying to let her know that if she were going to speak, she would have to talk about a much wider range of things than she had before thought necessary. So that was the first knowledge I had, that Florence had committed suicide. It had never entered my head. You may think that I had been singularly lacking in suspiciousness. You may consider me even to have been an imbecile. But consider the position. In such circumstances of clamor, of outcry, of the crash of many people running together, of the professional reticence of such people as hotel keepers, the traditional reticence of such good people as the Ashburnhams, in such circumstances, it is some little material object always that catches the eye and that appeals to the imagination. I had no possible guide to the idea of suicide, and the sight of the little flask of nitrate of amyl in Florence's hand suggested instantly to my mind the idea of the failure of her heart. Nitrate of amyl, you understand, is the drug that is given to relieve sufferers from angina picturis. Seeing Florence as I had seen her, running with a white face and with one hand held over her heart, and seeing her as I immediately afterwards saw her, lying upon her bed with the so familiar little brown flask clenched in her fingers, it was natural enough for my mind to frame the idea. As happened now and again, I thought, she had gone out without her remedy, and having felt an attack coming on whilst she was in the gardens, she had run in to get the nitrate in order as quickly as possible to obtain relief. And it was equally inevitable my mind should frame the thought that her heart, unable to stand the strain of the running, should have broken in her side. How could I have known that, during all the years of our married life, that little brown flask had contained not nitrate of amyl, but prussic acid? It was inconceivable. Why, not even Edward Ashburnham, who was, after all, more intimate with her than I was, had an inkling of the truth. He just thought that she had dropped dead of heart disease. Indeed, I fancy 
that the only people who ever knew that Florence had committed suicide were Lenora, the Grand Duke, the head of the police, and the hotel keeper. I mention these last three because my recollection of that night is only the sort of pinkish effulgence from the electric lamps in the hotel lounge. There seemed to bob into my consciousness like floating globes the faces of those three. Now it would be the bearded, monarchical, benevolent head of the Grand Duke, then the sharp-featured, brown, cavalry-mustached feature of the chief of police, then the globular, polished, and high-collared vacuousness that represented Monsieur Chance, the proprietor of the hotel. At times one head would be there alone, at another the spiked helmet of the official would be close to the healthy baldness of the prince, then Monsieur Chance's oiled locks would push in between the two. The sovereign's soft, exquisitely trained voice would say, Ya, 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 each word dropping out like so many soft pellets of suet. The subdued rasp of the official would come, Sum befehl dorklaut, like five revolver shots. The voice of Monsieur Chance would go on and on, under its breath, like that of an unclean priest reciting from his breviary in the corner of a railway carriage. That was how it presented itself to me. They seemed to take no notice of me. I don't suppose that I was even addressed by one of them. But as long as one or the other, or all three of them were there, they stood between me as if I, being the titular possessor of the corpse, had a right to be present at their conferences. Then they all went away, and I was left alone for a long time. And I thought nothing, absolutely nothing. I had no ideas. I had no strength. I felt no sorrow, no desire for action, no inclination to go upstairs and fall upon the body of my wife. I just saw the pink effulgence, the cane tables, the palms, the globular match holders, the indented ashtrays. And then Lenora came to me, and it appears that I addressed to her that singular remark, Now I can marry the girl. But I have given you absolutely the whole of my recollection of that evening, as it is the whole of my recollection of the succeeding three or four days. I was in a state just simply cataleptic. They put me to bed and I stayed there. They brought me my clothes and I dressed. They led me to an open grave and I stood beside it. If they had taken me to the edge of a river, or if they had flung me beneath a railway train, I should have been drowned or mangled in the same spirit. I was the walking dead. Well, those are my impressions. What actually had happened had been this. I pieced it together afterwards. You will remember I said that Edward Ashburnham and the girl had gone off that night to a concert at the casino, and that Lenora had asked Florence almost immediately after their departure to follow them and to perform the office of chaperone. Florence, you may also remember, was all in black, being the mourning that she wore for a deceased cousin, Jean Hurlburg. It was a very black night, and the girl was dressed in cream-colored muslin that must have glimmered under the tall trees of the dark park like a phosphorescent fish in a cupboard. You couldn't have had a better beacon. And it appears that Edward Ashburnham led the girl not up the straight alley that leads to the casino, but in under the dark trees of the park. Edward Ashburnham told me all this in his final outburst. I have told you that upon occasion he became deucedly vocal. I didn't pump him. I hadn't any motive. 
At that time, I didn't in the least connect him with my wife. But the fellow talked like a cheap novelist, or like a very good novelist for the matter of that, if it's the business of a novelist to make you see things clearly. And I tell you that I see that thing as clearly as if it were a dream that never left me. It appears that, not very far from the casino, he and the girl sat down in the darkness upon a public bench. The lights from that place of entertainment must have reached them through the tree trunks, since, Edward said, he could quite plainly see the girl's face, that beloved face with the high forehead, the queer mouth, the tortured eyebrows, and the direct eyes. And to Florence, creeping up behind them, they must have presented the appearance of silhouettes. For I take it that Florence came creeping up behind them, over the short grass, to a tree that I quite well remember was immediately behind that public seat. It was not a very difficult feat for a woman, instinct with jealousy. The casino orchestra was, as Edward remembered to tell me, playing the Rakutsi march, and although it was not loud enough at that distance to drown the voice of Edward Ashburnham, it was certainly sufficiently audible to a face amongst the noises of the night, the slight brushings and rustlings that might have been made by the feet of Florence or by her gown in coming over the short grass, and that miserable woman must have got it in the face, good and strong. It must have been horrible for her, horrible. Well, I suppose she deserved all that she got. Anyhow, there you have the picture, the immensely tall trees, elms most of them, towering and feathering away up into the black mistiness that trees seem to gather about them at night. The silhouettes of those two upon the seat, the beams of light coming from the casino, the woman all in black peeping with fear behind the tree trunk. It is melodrama, but I can't help it. And then it appears something happened to Edward Ashburnham. He assured me, and I see no reason for disbelieving him, that until that moment he had had no idea whatever of caring for the girl. He said that he had regarded her exactly as he would have regarded a daughter. He certainly loved her, but with a very deep, very tender, and very tranquil love. He had missed her when she went away to her convent school. He had been glad when she had returned. But of more than that, he had been totally unconscious. Had he been conscious of it, he assured me, he would have fled from it as from a thing accursed. He realized that it was the last outrage upon Lenora. But the real point was his entire unconsciousness. He had gone with her into that dark park with no quickening of the pulse, with no desire for the intimacy of solitude. He had gone, intending to talk about polo ponies and tennis rackets, about the temperament of the reverend mother at the convent she had left, and about whether her frock for a party when they got home should be white or blue. It hadn't come into his head that they would talk about a single thing that they hadn't always talked about. It had not even come into his head that the taboo which extended around her was not inviolable. And then suddenly that, he was very careful to assure me that at that time there was no physical motive about his declaration. It did not appear to him to be a matter of a dark night and a propinquity and so on. No, it was simply of her effect on the moral side of his life that he appears to have talked. He said that he never had the slightest notion to enfold her in his arms or so much as to touch her hand. He swore that he did not touch her hand. He said that they sat, she at one end of the bench, he at the other, 
he leaning slightly towards her and she looking straight towards the light of the casino, her face illuminated by the lamps. The expression upon her face he could only describe as queer. At another time, indeed, he made it appear that he thought she was glad. It is easy to imagine that she was glad, since at that time she could have no idea of what was really happening. Frankly, she adored Edward Ashburnham. He was, for her, in everything that she said at that time, the model of humanity, the hero, the athlete, the father of his country, the lawgiver. So that for her to be suddenly, intimately, and overwhelmingly praised must have been a matter for mere gladness, however overwhelming it were. It must have been as if a god had approved her handiwork or a king her loyalty. She just sat still and listened, smiling. And it seemed to her that all the bitterness of her childhood, the terrors of her tempestuous father, the bewailings of her cool-tongued mother were suddenly atoned for. She had her recompense at last. Because, of course, if you come to figure it out, a sudden pouring forth of passion by a man whom you regard as a cross between a pastor and a father might, to a woman, have the aspect of mere praise for good conduct. It wouldn't, I mean, appear at all in the light of an attempt to gain possession. The girl, at least, regarded him as firmly anchored to his Lenora. She had not the slightest inkling of any infidelities. He had always spoken to her of his wife in terms of reverence and deep affection. He had given her the idea that he regarded Lenora as absolutely impeccable and as absolutely satisfying. Their union had appeared to her to be one of those blessed things that are spoken of and contemplated with reverence by her church. End of part three, the first half of section one.